Welcome to episode 113, White Supremacist Violence, Understanding the Resurgence and Stopping the Spread, featuring Dr. Brian Van Brunt. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This course features Dr. Brian Van Brunt, a white expert on extremism, in an interview with me, also a white clinician. He discusses prospective therapeutic interventions that have been shown to be effective with individuals who may be at risk for extremist violence. Special attention should be paid to how power dynamics may play out in therapy with this population and the risks and benefits of therapy. Differences and or similarities between therapist and client, including but not limited to race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religious preferences, etc., and or individual factors may result in a treatment failure or loss of control by either or both therapist and client. Therapists are encouraged to consider this concept of informed consent, including but not limited to the appropriateness of referring out, educating the client that they can choose a therapist of the same or differing characteristics if they prefer, etc. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am honored today to be joined by Dr. Brian Van Brunt. Um, Brian has been in the counseling field for more than 25 years, and one of his specializations is threat and risk management, and he also specializes in really the psychology behind extremism. I reached out to Brian and asked him to do this interview with me in light of the attacks on the Capitol on January 6th. And um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm grateful to Brian for taking part and also want to let you as our listeners know, this is an opportunity, I think, to hear from somebody who has a specialization in this topic and also know that this is an informal conversation between Brian and myself and just hearing from him his thoughts on how we got here and then what we clinically do uh, moving forward to help where we are with regard to extremism and white supremacy in the United States. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Beth. Thanks. Um, it's one of those things that you didn't, you know, I think when you're like five, I want to be a fireman or a police officer or something. I don't know that I started out saying, you know what I want to really do is study threat assessment and prevent, you know, violent attacks on um, schools and buildings and individuals. But I, I found myself through um, a fairly interesting arc, um, starting out doing emergency psych work um, in California. We call these 5150s. So basically doing inpatient admissions work. Um, from there, I began doing some outpatient therapy with kids, uh, doing child and family work, um, doing some trauma work with younger kids. And then I had a private practice for a while, uh, working with some agencies on um, you know, the side, doing some emergency services work. So it was a fairly easy transition. During this time, we had our four kids. Um, it sounds like I wasn't involved in that process. I was. We, we had four kids. <laughs> and there was just so much um, Play-Doh in my life that I needed to do something different. So I worked full time with, um, with the college population. And then uh, kind of the end of my story here is I found at the college population level, there wasn't a whole lot of um, you know skills related to assessing this what we call targeted violence, this mission-oriented kind of planned violence. That when most therapists um, of, of any persuasion didn't have a lot of experience assessing this more premeditated kind of violence. They were really good at, are you a danger to yourself or others? But the danger to others was more, as I'm sure you ran into, 
more focused on um, this imminent um, or psychotic kind of behavior. It wasn't, I'm going to hurt someone months from now because they've wronged me. Really developed that skill set through a different um, set of organizations, ATAP, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. I began with NABIDA back then, the um, National Association of Behavioral Intervention and, and Threat Assessment Teams. And from there, really moved to um, joining um, that group. So currently, I work with them doing consulting. Uh, Pre-COVID, I'd be on the road about 200 days a year at colleges, um, hospitals, workplaces all across the country, doing trainings on mental health issues, suicide prevention, um, targeted violence, and the, the bit care threat teamwork, creating these collaborative teams to prevent this violence. I'm doing this training in this space now with professionals trying to get out ahead of these kind of attacks. Wonderful. Um, Brian, as you and I record this, it is now January 20th, 2021. We just watched the inauguration. Um, so we now have transitioned to the Biden and Harris administration. Right. Gosh, a lot's happened in the last few weeks in the United States. I'm curious for you as someone who has a specialization in this kind of work, what was it like for you to watch the um, insurgents at the Capitol on January 6th? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it's hard to separate, I think, the cognitive from the, the emotional, right? Um, and I think there's probably a parallel question for people who do this work every day, but when it's like your family at home, things change. So I certainly had, I think what many of us did was an immediate visceral reaction to it that reminded me of the 9-11 attacks. And I think my first gut instinct was, what if this is just the tip of what's to come that day? So I think I went into protective mode. Um, I remember fondly uh, my poor son, Eli, who's 11, just watching this with the teenagers and the, my adult children who are in their young 20s. And, you know, we're all glued to the TV. Eli's just wanting to put Harry Potter back on. And we're like, no, and the poor kid went through this with the election as well. Just like the 24-hour news cycle. And we're not big news people. From a cognitive standpoint in the work that I'm doing, this wasn't surprising at all. This was absolutely predictable. We saw this coming. Um, the growth of the Proud Boys, the growth of these white supremacist movements. Um, there's actually a really clear arc to this behavior. The, the thing that we can get into, I'm sure, a little later is the difference between prevention and prediction. And this ties in pretty well to suicide um, and the work we do in that space. But the idea of this wasn't really a surprise. We've seen this percolating for a while. We can identify these risk factors and protective factors. And this was something that you know was going to happen the way things were set up. So I think it was that kind of uh, dichotomous <laughs> moment for me, a lot of in the head, but also a lot of kind of um, you know visceral emotional reaction to like, what are we seeing here? And, and fear, I think, was was maybe a common reaction that others had as well. So in in a very short blurb, how did we get here? For someone like you that saw this coming, how did we get here? And and well, we'll get to the now what, but what what happened? When did it happen? How does this happen where a group breaks and then suddenly crosses that threshold into extremism? Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff, research and literature that's that's been on this. I'm actually working on a book now with some colleagues on white supremacist violence. So there's a lot of research and, and details behind the question. But let me ask it, I mean, answer it a little more um, just from the heart that I think... 
at the core of this, I remember being at a conference uh, a couple years back. We had this great keynote speaker, um, Adam uh, Langford, and one of the things that he talked about here was uh, suicide bombers, and this was you know something that I, I found fascinating. What he said was, imagine if you were a suicide bomber and you have your vest on, and you have your little button that you're going to click and it's going to kill people. What would it take for you? What would be your motivation to hit that button? And for those who haven't really trained in this space or kind of new to the topic, I think our gut instinct would be, I don't know, man, like if they had my family hostage, like it wouldn't be a proud moment, but maybe I'd set off the bomb because it would help my, my family live. Um, maybe if I believed in something so strongly that by killing other people, it was going to bring about this massive change. Um, maybe that would be the thing that would cause me to push the button. And a lot of his research really focused back on this concept, which I think just um, feels very true when, when we hear it, that the core element is not a hardened perspective to harm others. You know, we're getting all caught up in the, the white supremacist movement and who they hate and what they're frustrated about. The core element is um, hopelessness, desperation, suicidality, um, and the things that go along with marginalization. So it was, to me, kind of a, a light going off moment in my head that as we looked at these issues, um, we, we get distracted a little bit by the content of what they're saying, but truly the, the path both to identify people at a higher risk as well as um, you know, working with them clinically. If I'm sitting down with someone who has really strong beliefs in this space, who's maybe involuntarily celibate or one of the incels or you know, someone who's identifying as a proud boy, if I'm the therapist treating them, I think the place to start is really those underlying currents of loneliness, despair, feeling left out, feeling like everyone else is getting what they want except me. So that um, I think the, the colloquial phrase is FOMO, right? The fear of missing out, that, that everyone's getting what they want. So you know, as a therapist, I'm sure you appreciate too. I'm like, ooh, cognitive dissonance stuff and catastrophizing. So that's where I have found that the treatment um, approach to working with these folks really does center on you know trying to heal some of those wounds of feeling you know lost, separated, frustrated, and not heard. Um, so I don't know if that helps a little bit there. It does help. And speaking for myself, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm a woman and I carry a couple of marginalized identity cards in my wallet, so to speak. And I remember vividly when Barack Obama was elected and how significant that was. And I remember watching the inauguration and also having this feeling of, you know, the divide that it was so, to me, it was like, wow, a marginalized person that's up up on the stage and is being elected and I feel seen and I feel heard, but acknowledging simultaneously, there's this whole group of people that now feels like they're not seen, that they're not heard, and that we kind of keep passing the buck. And tell me how that phenomenon has carried forward and into what we're seeing now in this idea of these folks feeling like I don't have a place here anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things very much that drives them to each other, you know, and I, one of the other books I recently wrote was on the um, incel or the involuntarily celibate. And I think there's some really good lessons in that space here for these individuals. I'm not implying that anyone who is adopting, a, you know, QAnon or, you know, whatever your particular flavor of um, conspiracy is, white supremacy or, you know, whatever hardened, crystallized point of view you're pushing forward. Um, that the the root there is that feeling of like disconnection. But with the incel, what you're seeing a lot is someone who finds um, 
sustenance, nurturance, caring, love in the group, um, even if it has some teasing elements and it might not be the love that you and I might be accustomed to, they they seek that solace, I think is probably a good word in the um, in, in those groups. And that's one of the things that they find. So whether it's, you know, the kind of things that um, we were talking earlier about, maybe our experiences politically, I was at the Women's March in San Diego, you know, wearing the shirts. I still have some of the the uh, posters around here. We wear things to affiliate, to connect with each other. Um, and I think, you know, we see some tactical gear, or we see the, the tattoos, we see um, the symbols that, that draw them together. And I think some of that is a desire for connection to each other. Um, the problem is it's a really nihilistic and sad way to connect. Same with the incels. Like in the end, it's a fairly destructive philosophy. It leaves you alone and, and scared. So it's it's a challenging problem to wrestle with, I think, at the core of it, that we have people who kind of feel left out. But, you know, again, for you and I, I, I also went through, you know, Obama getting elected. I'm like, this is wonderful. And I, I loved seeing the White House lit up with the rainbow colors. But in my family, I know that was super aggravating to my parents, to my brother. Um, you know, and I'm sure many of us have these examples where we get um, kind of that black sheep feeling or we feel like, you know, on some level, we get to be in a good spot now. They get to be in a different spot. So that that to me, I think, was part of the issue that it's it's trying to tie into this core of feeling alone, scared, and marginalized, but realizing they're not quite the same that, you know, for you and I, I think on some level we're marginalized and hoping that we can bring everyone to an equitable place, whereas the others are feeling... Um, you know, in some ways as if they they don't just get to have what they want. Um, it reminds me a little bit about the the racial insensitivity of the white privileged folks saying, hey, I sure wish uh, we had a, a white, you know, history month. Why did the black people get a black history month and where's mine? So there, there's at some point where we just can't level the playing field and say, well, we all should get what we want. Um, but I think if we're truly going to knock these individuals off their pathway towards violence, part of that has to start with an understanding that um, they're hurt, they're scared, they're worried, um, and they're feeling you know, left out, lacking a purpose. We can go all uh, Viktor Frankl for a little bit, I'm sure, at some point in the session um, to just talk about you know, the path towards fixing this does have to start with the pain that they're experiencing. But that as you know, a clinician, as a, as a father, as a husband, for me is hard to you know, try to connect with that pain because the pain is very closely connected to some really um, you know, harsh and, and somewhat disgusting ideologies. So that's, that's, I think, the challenge for the clinician. I really appreciate the point you just made about the clothing and these attempts for connection. Um, because I think from the outside in, we could be splitting that the other way, which their attempts at divisiveness. And I really appreciate the point that you just made, which was recognizing that actually what, what anybody is looking for when we're flying a certain flag, when we're wearing certain clothing is connection primarily. And that reframe, I think, is really important. Um, I, you know, I, I've I've had close neighbors that are flying flags and doing things that have been really divisive and kind of scary for me, um, as as a woman, as um, part of a family of color, uh, being aware of those kind of things. <laughs> um, and I think what I'm hearing already is this idea of just I think the shared humanity. Um, so so what happens when 
this idea of like, basically the world is moving on and I'm being left behind. What has to happen? What are the factors that come into play to take that idea into what we saw on the Capitol on January 6th? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's, it's almost too late once they're showing up and they're in a scenario where there's a riot or they're moving forward. I often get asked the question, how to stop say a campus shooting or, um, you know, something like we've seen at Columbine, Virginia tech, uh, Northern, Northern Illinois university Parkland, you know, the list goes on and on and consistently what I'll say, and, and this is also from the national threat assessment center in the U S FBI Homeland, everyone's saying the same thing that we need to start early. Um, almost as if there's a wagon wheel kind of moving in the mud, that the longer we let that wagon wheel sink into that mud, the more we're going to find it's difficult to kind of nudge it out. So as soon as we start to see that habit forming and that routine, whereas the person's kind of moving on that pathway to violence, part of our goal is to offer them alternative um, behaviors. You know, one of the, the protective factors for this kind of extremist violence is um, looking for and trying to encourage nonviolent outlets. Um, I know my girls who are, gosh, now um, 20 and, and 17, um, they only grew up pretty much in the Obama administration. That's what they knew during their formative years. You know, part of many reasons why they're not terrorists and killing people right now, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but let me give you at least one, is that when they were frustrated with the politics that came with our, our most recent administration, one of the things that they were able to do, like when Parkland occurred, was participate in some of those marches. They participated in the the Kitty Ear, <laughs> the Kitty Ear March, right? Um, they put on the hats. They went out there. They made signs. And so they had a nonviolent outlet to express their frustration. And we see parallels, I think, in um, racial issues as well, where you know whether it's taking a knee at a sporting event or um, being able to protest and and have conversations with people about systemic racism, that there's opportunities here. I think to to express those frustrations. It's almost as if I don't want it to do, I'm, I have a lot of narrative therapist in me, so I have to kind of pull that back a little bit. But I do um, find the metaphor of like a pressure cooker is, is adequate here too, that it's when we can let that steam off, when we can feel that connection with others, when we can feel like we're moving towards a goal, that's part of this solution as well. When we feel like the only thing that we can do is rage, um, the only way that we can get meaning is through like fame seeking or uh, moving towards this um, vengeance kind of plan. Um, that's, I think, what we're seeing with the capital attacks. That's what we've been seeing for quite some time with the white supremacist movement, that they're feeling, again, marginalized and feeling as if the only way they can be heard and that their particular philosophy can be expressed is, is through violence. And that's where we really have to, I think, shift away from that a bit. Okay. So for you, it's really the line then becomes the act of violence, but otherwise the important takeaway that I just heard is is that it it is important for people to have a venue to express their frustration, to gather, to connect with people. How do leaders draw that line? You know, I, we've seen so many marches over the years and, and we we align with certain ideas and we say, okay, you know, and then there's obviously as part of this conversation, we can't ignore the race element here that is invariably going to be added of when we call something a riot versus a protest. But where is that line where it gets crossed and where it's like, whoa, hold on. Now we're getting into danger zone. Yeah, we, we developed a tool um, by we, I mean, um, Dr. Amy Murphy, who's over at um, San Angelo State in Texas, been a um, colleague of mine for, for a long time. 
And we, we wrote a tool that, that Nabita uses, and, and this tool is called the ERIS. It's the Extremist Risk Intervention Scale. And one of the things we did in the research related to this was try to pull together a really succinct uh, mission statement, if you will, for this expert system. The, the thing that we walked away with was really a conversation about anyone who has a hardened, crystallized, passionate point of view who feels as if... Um, they are justified acting violently to other people because of that. That's really what this tool is, is designed to walk clinicians and administrators through to give you a level of, of concern or threat and then base our interventions upon that. So to answer your question, I think it's really that core element where violence is um, you know, seemingly justified for an individual because they don't agree with other individuals. And there is absolutely, and I love that you picked up on that, a super slippery slope here, because we, we can go all like Jean Valjean and we can get into, um, right. I mean, there's times where violence becomes revolution and that's, you know, it's a tough conversation to have. Where's violence justified? You know, someone wanting, um, you know, racial equality is different than someone suggesting that we should be able to burn crosses on people's lawns. So there, there has to be, I think for us, that plumb line is more the, the movement towards violence um, as we move forward. So when I look at protests, for example, um, what I'm looking for there is really anyone who's showing up um, in riot gear, it, with weapons, with um, shields, with those kind of things, that these are people... Uh, maybe it's a defensive posture, maybe it's an offensive posture, but when we look at these cases, it's when they're showing up not to express an opinion, but instead to um, incite violence towards others. I was watching the news the other day and they were talking about the uh, Women's March, I believe, back in um, right after the, the Trump election and how um, was it? it was just a ridiculously awesome amount of people who were there for that. I think it was in the millions and no, no instance of violence at all. So I, I think there's times where we can gather and have these conversations. Um, but the, that kind of tit for tat violence that we're seeing the back and forth that's occurring here um, where the, the white supremacists are coming out, you know, ready for a fight. And then we have um, Antifa kind of uh, bolstering up against them. Um, this is where we're running into some of the problems. A um, lot of, lot of the other details here. The, the one thing I will say, cause I, I think it's a really essential point of clarity that we have to separate out the difference between someone, between the, the organization and their mission and someone who says they're affiliating with the organization. This has been a bone of contention for me for a while. Um, so one more rant if I can. This one, um, so for example, you know, someone who identifies as a fundamentalist Christian who then decides to kill a doctor performing abortions. You have to on some level appreciate that they're no longer following the fundamental Christian values, at least that most fundamental Christians would ascribe to. Um, the attacks on 9-11 in the U.S. with the Muslim um, and Islamic, there's another piece here where there's there's really no room for that level of violence within um the, the religion of Islam. So when you start to think about it that way, there's times where people say that they're affiliated with a certain group, religion, um, and then um, they don't really follow the, the basic tenets. So we're seeing that with, um, I think, many individuals who want to come forward and say, I just think white should have the same rights as everybody else. And like that kind of, if, if I can, ignorant statement can be met with debate and conversation. Someone else coming out and saying whites have been put down, we're going to violently take back what we've been missing. That, that There's no debate there, right? That needs to be really some firm line. So I don't know if that's just muddied the waters more there, Beth, or that helps a little bit. No, I, I think it, it all helps because, 
you're looking at this with eyes that I don't have and with a background that I don't have. And I know for our listeners, to me, this is fascinating to just get a little insight in how you see these things. And you know, I was thinking about Kyle Rittenhouse, um, who was a 17-year-old that ended up shooting three people um, in August. That idea with, with Kyle Rittenhouse, it sounds like the fact that he came armed um, for you was that was a line, that it wasn't that he was coming and he was gathering. It was that there, there was this um, implication of, of violent capability. And that was where the line was in that. Um, and I, I heard your point about the women's march, that there weren't any violent actions. And so it sounds like really when people are gathering, are, are they doing so with weapons? Are they doing so with tactical gear and with this idea that there's going to be some kind of um, confrontation? Yeah, or we should just put women in charge because they do things better, apparently. It's <laughs> one of the practical takeaways. I well, mean, interestingly, um, yeah. we just did. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also kind of not. You know, people ask me when I'm doing violence trainings, and um, I'm trying to work in a little uh, content within the conversation. So, there, there's really two kinds of violence that we attend to when we're assessing risk during a threat assessment. One is what we call effective violence, right? And this is violence driven by adrenaline, uh, rage. It's poorly planned. It's immediate. Uh, effective violence is essentially someone getting cut off in traffic. I know you have no traffic in LA, but if you could imagine a place where there was traffic, that's my little joke to Los Angeles, <laughs> um, that um, it is, it, it gets us rageful and we react. Another great example is COVID rage. You know, people who get um, upset when someone's either not wearing a mask or they're being forced to wear a mask. Like, I don't know about you, Beth, but I found myself over the past nine months saying or doing things to people that normally I'd never do, but I'm kind of tapping into this like rage of either for me, at least wearing a mask all this time. And then I see some knucklehead out there not wearing a mask. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, and I'm like, why would I say that to someone? Like, what's the positive outcome of this interaction? But it's driven by this like trauma and stress and it vice versa, right? So I don't want to just be one side of this issue. I've watched people who are being asked to wear masks and they get, you know, just as rageful and it's, it goes on both sides of it. So that's effective violence. It's driven by adrenaline, um, all of these issues. So that that's one thing to think about that when people are just showing up randomly and just getting into fights, there's a lack of planning. It's, it's not typically what we see related to this other kind of violence, which is, it actually has like five or six names. I, they haven't decided yet our favorite name for it, but it goes by, uh, I like mission oriented because it, it right in the name kind of captures what it's about. But I've also seen predatory, targeted, instrumental, um, tactical, strategic. So it's violence that's premeditated. So exactly like you're saying, someone who brings a weapon, you know, to an event, um, kind of ready for a fight, um, they're, they're thinking about this beforehand. In that subset, long, long journey to this answer, in the subset of targeted violence or mission-oriented violence, I believe we're seeing something new. Um, that I'm kind of coining the term Jack in the Box, mostly because I love that place in California. Um, <laughs> those tacos are delicious, not particularly healthy, but delicious. The Jack in the Box, like the old timey kind of toy that would wind up like the do, do, do and then pop up. So what we're seeing is people preparing in a targeted way beforehand, premeditating, getting ready for violence. And then they show up to a place where there's a high likelihood that they're going to be triggered, almost like a pool of gasoline getting hit with a match. And that's what we're seeing here. This is a little different than like the Parkland school shooting 
um, other planned attacks where we're seeing people, you know, like uh, Vegas or um, out in Norway. We're, we see when I study these attacks, what we see is people over time planning to a very specific location. It's a very detailed kind of planning attack. This jack-in-the-box violence that I'm seeing a little bit more of, this targeted violence subset, typically is looking like people who are ready for a fight and are showing up in a scenario where it's very likely they're going to be challenged. Um, a great example of this, if people are interested, and I try not to use the names a lot, but it's hard to uh, avoid that. I'm not trying to make this person grandiose or uh, part of media attention. But if you Google uh, Jeremy Christian, he was involved in an attack um, out in um, I believe Portland, Oregon, about two years ago. And this was a guy who was at protests. There's video of him doing this. He would show up. He had a baseball bat. He had like the American flag he was wrapped in. He had knives and things. So he was showing up and he would actually go to the other side. The, the police did a really nice job separating people that you're over here supporting you know, this one belief and you're over here supporting this. So the idea is he would actually go to the other side and try to get people into fights and arguments and such. So this is much more, I think, what we're seeing here. It's not necessarily like a planned attack, but they're showing up like locked and loaded, ready to go. And you know, if something happens, something happens. So that's what I, I would describe the capital attacks as. I don't think there was a, a planned um at least for the vast majority, I don't think what we're seeing is this pre-planned, very detailed kind of attack with with clear objectives to kill people. Um, there were certain individuals that seemed to follow that path, the ones with like the, the um, handcuffs and zip ties, exactly. But in terms of a larger group that had a plan there, I don't, I don't know that we saw that as much. What we saw were a lot of people, a lot of weapons, locked and loaded, showing up basically in this crucible. And then the I think is what exploded for them. One other little piece I'd add to that is like, and this is why it's such a, I, I use often that um, John Sachs poem about the, the blind men from Indistan, the touching the different parts of the elephant. It's a beautiful poem about, you know, how, when we assess something, we're always going to do that better when we assess it by touching all the different parts. And with that particular attack, yes, absolutely. The preparing beforehand, the showing up, the feeling isolated, that's all important. The developmentally sick, the developmental psychology of that, that was huge. You know, here's a kid, I want to say, what, 16, 17? Like, um, I think that's probably more of a pressing issue for him. Um, why there wasn't a sense of connection to others, why he found his only connection with these, you know, law enforcement groups. Um, you know, and, and sometimes I think these groups will have conversations and they're not always aware, little ears are listening. So I think he kind of got sucked up into that group and then ended up doing something, you know, fairly, ex not even fairly extreme, like horrible and very extreme. Um, and I think people look at him like why would you do that and it's like well you've taught him this <laughs> like this is the group he wanted to do it to make you proud so i think with when you look at age um that also has to play into this because as we know kids brains are not fully developed at that age the way they make decisions they're not always like i'm sharing you know important guidance here about teenagers that they don't always they're not always aware of consequences but that's one of the issues i think with that case that really was um, a big part of the puzzle in addition to the showing up armed and kind of ready to go. I, I'm glad you bring up that point. And as you're talking about that, what it reminds me of um, early in my career, I worked quite a bit with gang affiliated youth and yes. that same concept of yep. seeking identification and being enough and the, the importance of the human drive to be connected, to be understood, to have value and worth. And 
that's really a whole separate podcast that we could do. I mean, I, I went to UC Santa Barbara, so we had the attack in Santa Barbara, um, which at the time, I, I don't know if incel existed, but in retrospect, it sounds like he was an incel. And these ideas of how, how did we get here um, with these young, generally young men, um, and these ideas of, of acts of violence um, in order to be be part of something effectively. Through your lens, what was the tipping point in in what's happened in the United States? I know from the research I've done that this was not something that happened in the last couple of years. This this was brewing, developing over over potentially even generations. Um, but what do you believe happened? I mean, obviously, part of this conversation when we had a president that was directly acknowledging and encouraging. I mean, how much was that a part of it? How did all of this come to be what it was on January 6th? I mean, my, my kind of curt answer is when Mitch McConnell says that's part of the problem, it's hard to, like when, when even you have the other side in some ways admitting this, it's, it's I think, pretty common sense that Trump inspired this. Um, he's been inspiring this. It's been right from the get-go, from the very, was it the escalator scene? It's like, I'm trying to make it some kind of movie for me. But in that scenario where he starts to refer to people from Mexico as, or even some of the drug and gang groups there as like cockroaches and things. Like to me, I, I tuned into that because when we look at threat, one of the things we look at is objectification of target, depersonalization, lack of agency. Um, and that that's what worries me that we look at this and we see this um, really taking away the humanity of the different group. Um, we're not good at having debate any longer. We can't. Um, I mean, I, I'll tell you this. When I was watching the Trump administration, I don't know how to feel about China's poli our policy towards China on um uh, exports and imports. I, I'm not smart enough to know that. It's not an area of expertise for me. But I know that I don't like Trump and I didn't like his policy on it. And that's part of the problem that when we can't have areas of commonality and agreement to at least even talk about when we're just kind of off to the races with the objectification and the depersonalization, you're a, a libtard, you're a, a Trumpy, an idiot. What? So we get these names. And for me, the name calling is one of those first kind of steps along the spectrum of the escalation. Because when you call someone a name, even when it's something like, oh, those people or the, the very beginning of that talks about the separation, seeing them not as us, but seeing them as othering. As other. Othering, exactly. There's that great, um, if people are interested, the Black Mirror episode. Um, it's a very shocking show, so I don't advise everyone to kind of jump in and watch Black Mirror, and we'll see if I can find the name of it and send it to you. But it's um, it's one where they look at um, this technology piece of it, where they're doing essentially a genocide um, of a, a certain population, but they have the technology to allow soldiers to see them as zombies and monsters, not as people. And it, it's such a great example of an othering experience like that that we see Um you know, with individuals. I, I will say this too. I, I feel like we're not all lost. I have a lot of hope in the new generation. I think, you know, this dovetails back a little bit to social media that I see sometimes well-meaning therapists and individuals and teachers and educators saying the problem is everyone's on their screens all the time and we're not having good conversations with each other. You know, the irony of us first meeting today, Beth, over a podcast and having these conversations, like technology is a tool that can be good or bad. Um, and I know I might 
gain the ire of some of your audience with this statement, but for me, joining TikTok and watching this new generation at, at 48, I feel a little distanced from the 18-year-old right now, even though I have two in my house. Um, but I rem I'm reminded when I was a child and family therapist that part of the language that I used to connect with the kids back then, every month I'd go to Toys R Us, I'd look at some of the toys, I was really good at Pokemon, and you know, child therapists get really good at like Uno, their Uno skills are always on point. You know, we're learning the language of the kids that we're working with. And I think part of this has to be um, an embracing and understanding of the technology and realizing like everything, it's about the middle way. How can it be too much? How can it be not enough? That I think to demonize technology in this space is also um, what I see as a bit of a misstep by some folks to really try to reduce all of this to say, you know, like you mentioned, someone like Elliot Roger at, at um, Santa Barbara, who very much is like the father of incels. He was um, very much seen as a kind of the starter of a lot of this um, movement to say, well, the problem was he was just on, online all the time and that's where he was connecting with other people. Um, the, the online part isn't the bad part. It's the, the fact that there wasn't some other balance in there for him. So it's a, probably a whole other podcast. Is social media good or bad? Um, but I, I think it's hard to ignore that that's a huge part of this, as well as the, the authenticity and critical judgment when it comes to assessing media moving forward. Social media certainly was part of what got us here now. Um, if you can take a minute and speak to that, um, I mean, now that we have Trump effectively removed from a number of social media channels, how did that play into all of this? How do you see this continuing? You know, now this idea of they, if they can't gather on Twitter or on Facebook, where will they go to gather? How do you see it playing out with social media? Yeah, I mean, I think it cuts to the, that underlying problem that we started with, that they're already feeling marginalized and disenfranchised and alone and hopeless and frustrated. So back to the nonviolent outlets, um, we're, we're now basically, and I, I was one of the first joiners to Parler, not to like post and be like, hey, I'm on Parler, but because that's where the threat assessment people live too, because we're seeing the threats occurring here. So that was shut down. Um, and we've seen the same thing, again, this parallel with the incel community with the, the 3chan and 4chan. Chan and the different, um, you know, Reddit subgroups that we don't want to create a, a festering place for people to become inspired and basically to take people with what we call cognitive openings. Um, this essentially vulnerability to be radicalized. We don't want to have these places that they can show up and basically become radicalized to extremist violence. Um, but that also goes, you know, kind of hand in hand with free speech and the need for, again, these, these areas of connection um, that people feel, again, sometimes disenfranchised from the conversation. So I, I don't know if this fits, but there's, and, and for those of you who are prone to lists, let me, let me list off for you, because um, I know I've hinted at these a few times. In terms of the risk elements for this kind of violence that we're talking about that happened at the Capitol, I think there's five, and I'll list them slowly. The, the first is a sense of free fall. And what we mean by that is that they have this sense that their life is falling apart, things aren't going well, this could be finances, relationships, job, grades, that essentially they're in this, this not even like a good Tom Petty free fall, but just like free fall and that their life is falling apart. The second one is they have a sense of an outsider status. What they're feeling is they're not like the other people, um, they're alone. And the interesting, interesting thing about an outsider status is we all can feel that depending on where they are. 
Now, I'm fairly liberal. I'm guessing you put that together in, in your, your mind so far in my politics. Um, however, if I you know go to Martha's Vineyard or I'm in Massachusetts, I, I'm with my people and they're like, this is great. We believe what you believe. If I go to Texas, maybe outside Austin, um, I'll probably get some different, you know, I'll feel like the outsider there. So the outsider experience is a bit contextual. It just depends on who's around you at the time. So we have free fall for number one, outsider for number two, roadblocks, these obstacles to the goals that we want to get to. So, you know, like for many of us, I think about um, folks who've been in prison or jail, then when they get out and they want to reconnect to society, there's often roadblocks that are in place for them, the kind of places they can work, the opportunities that are available to them. That's the third. The fourth here is a sense of a hardened warrior, you know, basically taking that hardened point of view, those frustrations, um, you know, this is unfair, the election was a fraud, um, the only way people are going to listen is violence, trial by combat, you know, Giuliani was saying, all of these things sort of harden further. Um, and inspire. So the, the last one here, dangerous belonging, is then connecting to people who have experiences, um, who are in a place where they're moving forward. So the dangerous belonging is really about folks who are moving forward to connect with more extremist individuals. So when I think about social media, what I'm pulling together here is that the people who have these five different risk factors, a sense of free fall, outsider, roadblocks to positive movement, who are hardened in their perspective, and then connecting with others. Those are all things that can be done on social media. So it's absolutely a risk area that we have to look at. And, and I think they are. Um, the idea of offering alternative places to have these conversations, to find some common ground, and maybe, you know, basically be in a place where we can listen to alternative viewpoints that we might find abhorrent but aren't violent, aren't really you know, pushing for violent insurrection. So those are some of the free fall issues, yeah. I appreciate that you listed those out. Um, as you're talking about this, it reminds me of the interview I did not too long ago with Lambers Fisher, where we were talking about how to negotiate uh, differences values clashes between therapist and client because i was seeing on social media therapists saying you know i'm i'm a therapist of color and i have this client that is is getting a tattoo of a swastika you know like what do i do with that and right. i as a woman have had clients say just really horrifying things about women and objectification and acts of violence and this idea of like how do we work as uh, agents of change, but also as people in a very yeah. uncomfortable space. And, and now that we're kind of transitioning into this conversation, what do clinicians need to know about this? You know, if they're listening to this now and they're going, yep, my client has that, they have a sense of free fall, they have an outsider status, like they definitely have a hardened war warrior perspective. What are clinicians to do when they go, oh, oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, it's a great, really at the core of the the problem. Um, I Again, Amy, uh, Dr. Murphy, when we were doing some of this research, we were watching a video uh, on the streets of New York where someone had a, basically a, not a neo-Nazi speaker and someone comes up and punches him in the head. And, you know, I was like, good. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, but um, here's the thing, you know, punching a Nazi what happens next? Like, and you're like, well, I don't know. I feel good about punching the Nazi. And then she's like, yeah, but do they change? And I'm like, yeah, good point. Probably not. They probably actually get more angry about being punched and then redouble up on their hardening of perspective. So a lot of it, I think, starts with the appreciation of their value sets, not my value set. Um, and then we're kind of in a space of equity where we say, 
you know, if I want to help shape them to these more positive goals, um, what's going to be the most effective strategy? Um, I remember from my doctoral program, they were very cruel at my program. They made us memorize all of our citations when we wrote our comp exam, which I thought was particularly mean. So we didn't have any like sheets or anything. So I still remember Ernest Stringer, 1999 Action Research is locked in my brain forever. <laughs> but there was a great quote in this research book, and it's um, talking about Aboriginal tribes, um, anthropological comment, but the, the quote goes something like this. I won't get it exactly right, but he's coming in to work with this tribe. And, and the tribe says, if you are here from outside to you know fix our problems, we have no need for you. If you are here because your problems are our problems, that they are the same, then come in and, and allow us to help. And I've always thought about that comment in terms of, you know, if we're really trying to change someone, we're always going to be more effective doing that from a place of, I'm going to tip my therapeutic hat. I'm very existential and Rogerian. So I would approach this from a place of being authentic and genuine, unconditional positive regard. And that doesn't mean agreeing with what they're saying, but simply, you know, trying to understand where they've come from with this. And then I'd love to throw a little of that CBT magic in and say, you know, how's that working for you? You know, and helping them develop some discrepancy. You know, you believe this, you'd like things to change, but you're doing things that are actually making it worse for you. So that's where we, I think, start to insert some of that critical thought um, you know, trying to help these individuals. The, the other person I find really useful here is, again, I mentioned earlier some of Frankel's work and um, even Howard Voss, who's a, um, a writer who talks in the, the suffering and trauma space. But the, the idea here of helping people who are in pain um, you know, find some larger sense of meaning, find something that gives them uh, something that they can love or contribute towards. And I think when you have folks like this, almost like the, the teens who feel disenfranchised from their peer group or from women or dating and then get angry and then move towards a school shooting, the, the big piece that we teach is the idea of connection and giving them a larger sense of hope and engagement in some societal place. So I think it has to be, if we're getting someone off the pathway to violence, I've said a few times, we have to think about what new pathway are we putting them onto? There has to be some social connection, some larger meaning and larger purpose that they can connect to in a nonviolent way um, to be part of society. So for the clinician that has a client that either has actively participated in what's what's been going on, so in, in white supremacist um, marches in uh, social media and things like that, what would your advice be to them? It's like if, if you know that you have someone that is part of this group, strongly identified with this group already, what tools would you want them to have and information to help them navigate this? Most clinicians don't have a ton of experience with tariffs off, right? So one of the first things you want to become aware of is just some of your regulations in your state or country that you're operating under around tariffs off and those requirements to notify. Um, I would suggest in most common cases, we don't see a lot of these duty to warns kicking in. But if you are working with someone who might be you know, in that headspace, um, there, there needs to be not only an informed consent to them about those exceptions to confidentiality, but also 
this awareness. Um, I, more practically speaking, besides the legalese, the same way we might help someone who has an alcohol addiction um, is, I think, one of the places that I would start here. So when we take someone who has an alcohol addiction, when we're trying to help them and move them forward, if you think of a program like AA, it does two things primarily, right? And I'm going to simplify this. But essentially, we're looking at identifying the things that make the drinking worse, you know, that temptation. So we might look at new friends, new people that they're around. We're looking at who are the people that are around currently that escalate and increase that risk. Um, we might look at a higher power. We're going to look at what are the things that you're feeling when you're drinking? Are you sad every time you have a drink? Are you happy? Are you celebrating? Um, you know, what are the things that potentially do you have one beer and that always turns into 10? So when you're looking at those issues, how do you identify the things that make it worse? See that over on kind of the right side of your mind. On the left side, we want to think about the scaffolding. Um, the anchoring, the protective factors that we put in place. Um, simply put, something like AA can be useful because it's a group of people that we're creating this intentional community committed and focused on recovery and helping out. Um, the idea of a sponsor who cares for you, the idea of someone who is in a space of um, you know, going through this higher power assessment, the making amends, um, all the things that we know about positive psychology and altruism, things that I think were built into this program as well. So to bring it back to the, the violence issue here at hand, I think we're looking at any type of treatment planning for these individuals is going to be twofold. On one side, we're looking at how do we reduce the exacerbating, triggering events? How do we help make this not worse, if we can say it that way? Um, on the other side, we look at what kind of supports and scaffolding do we put around the individual to help, um, almost like a cast or the scaffolding around a building being repaired. How do we support that repair work to be protective and move them off this pathway? So, you know, practically speaking, for a student, um, I might identify that they get um, more excited and more, um, you know, triggered and maybe radical towards the radicalization when they go online. They go to certain chat groups. So we would try to, you know, have them limit that time initially, like a good harm reduction model. Um, ideally, like with cutting and self injury, it'd be great if they just stopped completely. But we might be in a harm reduction place there. Um, having them um, bring some of those ideas critically into therapy for conversation under a cognitive behavioral lens. Um, again, the trans theoretical change theory, motivational interviewing techniques, all of these work well to work with individuals to really kind of challenge some of their perspectives, develop discrepancies and the like. Um, on the flip side, though, we just don't want to get overly focused on limiting all of the triggers and all the things that make it bad. On the flip side, we need to say, what kind of things do we put in this person's life to fill the hole that essentially was here because of the other problem? Um, and again, back to um, those with alcohol addiction, you know, it's it's fine to remove the alcohol, but what are we putting in the place? So this might be for the student looking at different social groups, clubs and organizations, um, trying to improve social skills, um, looking at opportunities to get involved, feel part of something larger than themselves, giving them hope for a different future. So all the things that we're pretty good at as therapists, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, it's really, though, this twofold piece. And I, if there's one cautionary tale, I'll say to, to therapists and all of our diversity, it's not to just get overly focused on reducing the escalating factors, but also to spend that time and energy on supporting the student in that positive growth. Like how do we, once that seed's been planted, nurture it and keep it going in the right direction? 
I appreciate how much you just broke that down and this idea of, you know, if we're, if we're going to approach one, we have to make sure to do the other. And if, if, <laughs> if we as mental health professionals then are able to do that with the hope that maybe we have some of these people in our sessions, this belief that we are contributing toward the greater, greater good by reducing the violence, the risk of violence in our communities and our country at large. Um, what are other things that you would like clinicians to know about these elements like what are resources for them if you know we, we don't know who's going to call us and and who um or i know i've had the experience i've sometimes worked with clients for years and then they blurt something out and i go oh my goodness that completely yeah. <laughs> changes how i see you and i did not know that um what do they do when when we're not like you and we don't have this kind of knowledge and and um information yeah, I mean, at, at first, I think the curiosity about it's important. And um, certainly, if you've written books before, you know, you don't get rich writing books. I'm not saying this to like up my book sales. But I, I do think the harm to others book that I wrote for the American Counseling Association was really useful. They kind of divided it in half. The first half was how to assess violence, which I think a lot of therapists just didn't quite understand. They were like me when I started out, they assessed violence, like, are you currently a danger to yourself or others? And the big misstep here, and it's a huge misstep, is especially when we're getting referrals to counselors, like the schools referring or the community saying we're worried about you know Johnny um, because of these risk patterns. When we substitute in a general, are you a danger to yourself or others? Meaning, do you need to be locked up in the hospital for a violence risk assessment, which is really what we train on in the harm to others book. Here, we're really looking at identifying risk factors, protective factors, looking at the type of threat that's made, um, helping clinicians understand things like a transient threat is made briefly, I'm gonna burn the building down with not a whole lot of lethality or actionability. It's, it's done with the intent to get a reaction when someone's hurt and struggling. Whereas the more substantive threats are ones that are done um, that have a lot more detail attached to them um, and they, they're a lot more concerning. So I'm going to burn down the building at three o'clock on Friday and that's what's going to happen and you're going to pay for what we did. I, there's a book I did recently on a written threat analysis, like things on social media and the like. And it was, it was very general, so it didn't like narrow down just to white supremacy and what happened at the Capitol. But one of the things we found in the research for that book, we looked at about 200 cases. One of the things we found we were looking at either written content in like class and essays and the like, or when we were looking more specifically at a social media posts, when people included things like suicidal references, um, mentioning of previous attacks or injustice collecting, those were three things that we saw as very strong factors that escalated a risk. So a student who goes to Facebook and is like, I'm glad they attacked the Capitol. I should do something like this in my hometown. That might be seen again as a concern as it should be. But if they add a couple things to that, I'm glad they attacked the Capitol. We should do something like this in my own hometown. Nothing good's happening here anyway. This is a lot better idea than killing myself. I'm gonna go out like Kyle Rittenhouse. Those are the things that add to that detail, that increase that fixation and focus, the location, the action and time imperative. So again, long answer to your very good, succinct, short question. I think part of it has to be a curiosity to learn more about these concepts and that harm to others book is a great way to start that process. The back half of it is actually break up five different treatment modalities and talk about how someone from a CBT, humanistic, um, I think just stalt, um, 
motivational interviewing and trans theoretical change theory, how they would all approach a case slightly differently with some good practical examples. Um, if that's a lot and you're like, I don't have time to read a book right now, Brian, what I might suggest is the simplified concept here. This is one of these really kind of wisdom based things is more than anything else, people who are hurting and marginalized and struggling need connection. So I think I go back to those very core elements of rapport building and caring for our patients and working with them, this non-possessive um, love that Rogers describes, that one of the things that helps most around violence reduction across the board is a sense that someone cares for them and that they have their best interest at heart and there's a desire of, of hope. Um, I had a therapist once who told me at a training um, in New Hampshire, this must have been like 20 years ago. It was one of those like CE trainings that I was sitting through, right? And she said she's working with traumatized uh, women who had cut themselves and were involved in uh, self-injury. And she said, it doesn't matter who, but someone in the therapeutic session needs to hold the candle of hope alight. And whether that's the therapist or the client, you know, our job as the therapist is if the client's not holding a hope candle, we need to be holding that hope candle. So the idea of inspiring and encouraging and helping people realize, you know, it's perspective. It won't always be this bad. You're going to figure this out. I'm here to help you. Um, those are the kind of core elements to change. So while you can know that knowledge and all this transient and substantive stuff, more important than that by far are the core elements of what we do in our therapeutic practice, the caring for someone else and trying to understand things from their worldview and then slowly stepping them away from the danger. It's kind of parenting 101 as well, I think. <laughs> I, I'm i glad you said that um, because I think for many of us, as these incidents have happened and escalated, we have felt increasingly more helpless. And I think the reminder you just gave is a really valuable one, which is this, this is part of the process in violence reduction is, is love and acceptance and respect and honor and connection and that we are part of that equation. And, and when I say love, you know, I'm talking about the clinical kind of love, but that this is a fundamental human need. Uh, I'm glad that you brought it back to that. And this reminder for all of us that, that we can meet a client there and to, to kind of recap what I heard you say from the beginning to now the end of this conversation, we're talking about people that primarily feel like they've been left behind. And the part that we can influence as clinicians, if they're in our office, if they're in our lives, we can try to help be a source of connection and and a, a source of hope uh, and encouragement toward um, something more positive, something safer for themselves and for everybody. Is that is that the standard recap you would accept, Brian? <laughs> I got, I want you to follow me around and recap my stuff all the time. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's, you know, part of my career has been training new therapists, you know, I was a counseling center director at Western Kentucky and new England college. And, you know, I, I know all clinicians at some point who get older, start doing that count of like, has it been 10,000 clients I've seen? Has it been, you know, how many interns I've trained over the years? It's, it's dozens, if not hundreds. And, you know, I think anyone who trains new therapists is aware that we kind of have that moment where we smack them away from their knowledge and sort of remind them about the core elements. We all do this differently, but we say, listen, you can, you can empty chair that you can, you know, look at 
uh, REBT, you can do all these like fancy narrative therapy things and uh, all this stuff is great. The techniques are wonderful, but when it all comes down to it is that does the client, you know, respect who you are, um, have a sense of connection with you. I remember Yalom's um, book, uh, Twice Told Tales. It's kind of a lost book of Yalom's. It's a really cool one. He was working with his patient, Jenny. And um, yeah, as he's working with her, she wasn't able to afford to come to therapy. So he agrees to um, do a trade. I don't know how ethical this is nowadays. This was a while ago. So she wrote her experience about the therapeutic encounter and then he wrote his and they put it together into a book. It's fascinating. But there's one of these elements here that I always remember as a therapist and it's kind of a good ending note for me that in this story, um, Yalom was doing all these like amazing, like cool interventions and thinking about like these different connections and all of this. And Ginny writes about her therapeutic session. She's like, I'm really glad he asked me about what movie I saw this weekend. It really seemed like he cared about me. And I, I remember just the juxtaposition between those two points that what I think oftentimes as therapists, we're doing all these like grand, like cool things in our head. And we forget just the simple conversation with someone, the listening and the caring, those core elements of the humanistic approach um, really are what people who are planning this kind of violence or on this pathway need, I think, more than anything else. And the, the big challenge, I think, for a lot of us is oftentimes the things they say. I was really touched, Beth, with what you said about the the women stuff and the objectification. I can't tell you how many times, because I get this as a guy, right? Because the guy's like, oh, you're a guy's guy. You tell me. And just the kind of stuff I had to listen to, um, you know, but then I try to bring it in back to them and help them move maybe just a step or two in the right direction about how they're thinking on things. Um, but it is, and will remain to be a really challenging balancing act because there's part of us, if we're, you know, sort of a, my, my 17 year old loves it when I work this in, if we're woke, <laughs> right? And she's like, dad, don't say woke. And I'm like, woke AF? And she's like, no, that's worse. And I'm like, all right, good enough. Um, if we're woke, right? We should be striving towards these great self-actualized ideas. The trouble that we run into is that when we reach someone who's just, you know, really the antithesis of what we believe in our heart, who's really preaching things that are, are cruel and mean, it's it's a challenging task to hold both of those kind of juggled in our hands at the same time. And that, that's really at the core of what we run into. So that's, I guess, my last moment there to encourage therapists to really try to hang out in that space where you are still trying to help someone who might you know, be basically sharing some really destructive ideas or thoughts. I am glad that you ended there. Um, because I think that's a really important point to make and also a really powerful one. Brian, I seriously, I could sit here for hours and we could talk about this. Um, for our listeners that want to learn more about you, um, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, um, probably my website is the easiest. It's just www.brianvanbrunt.com. So it's B-R-I-A-N-V-A-N-B-R-U-N-T. Dot com and that has all my links to the books and things there so um, yeah would love to love to hear from you if you have questions and certainly if you're a student as well I, I very much believe in the giving back part so nothing makes me happier than to find someone who's doing a dissertation that I can help out with or just wants to to read um, or understand something so I, I nothing would make me happier to get a ton of emails and saying hey tell me more about this I, I will with glee respond to those emails wonderful um, Brian thank you so much for your work thank you for taking some time out especially at a time like this where I'm sure you're getting lots of calls um, on on this topic um, thank you I'm really really grateful very much my pleasure thanks for having me 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.